worship context. But it's why so often people can walk in to a worship context like this and they can feel something. And what they can feel is, this is what I want. This is what I've missed. If I had a dollar for every time someone has walked into the church and said, I just felt like I came home, or I just felt like all the weight of the world fell off my shoulders the moment I walked in and heard the music, or if I had a dollar for every time someone said, it's just such a relief to be here, I felt known, I would have some dollars. I would have a few dollars. I would probably have $100 over my 15-year career of doing this, or maybe more. The point is, what we sense is this is what we are for. This is what we have been missing. This is what we want, and we want more of it. So worship is what we're meant for, but we don't just glorify God. He also, and this is hard to get our heads around, the creator of everything, he glorifies us in the worship experience. As Paul goes on to say in the same chapter, those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There is something of a virtuous circle going round and round in the worship of heaven where everyone is glorifying everyone. Crazy, isn't it? But it's why, if we're going to choose something to worship, why not worship the only thing worthy of our worship, the only thing which, rather than sucking the life out of us, fills us with eternal life, fills us with the knowledge and love of our Father, fills us with the sense of our identity before him as precious children of God, and fills us with the power to be the people that we sense now and again we're going to be and to do the things that now and again we sense we could do. So why worship? Because he's worthy of it. It's what we're made for, and it brings us life. Question two, what does Jesus say about it? Let me read from a um, famous interaction Jesus has with a Samaritan woman in John's Gospel. This is chapter four. And I'm going to pick up the story after Jesus has foretold that this woman has um, already been married five times and that the person she's not currently living with is her husband. Jesus says this, this is verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. A little bit of background just to explain this. The central issue that divided the, the Jews from the Samaritans, and the Samaritans were regarded as half-breeds, really, by um, 
pure-blooded Jewish people because they had intermarried with Babylonians and Egyptians and various other people, and they were in the sort of northern uh, part of, um, uh, of Israel. And uh, the dividing issue, the thing that really um, separated them off, was where God was supposed to be worshipped. The Jews, uh, the pure-blooded Jews said he's to be worshipped in Jerusalem, in the temple, and the Samaritans said no on Mount Gerizim, which is where Jesus and this woman are currently standing. Hence, she says, we and our ancestors worship him here. Um, Jewish people said that we should worship him uh, in the temple, who's right. In one authoritative sentence, which doesn't answer that question at all, Jesus destroys all this ethnic division, all these ways and barriers of actually um, integrating with each other and with him in one short reply. Have a look at it. Verse 22. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Is he saying, the Jews are right, you're wrong? No. Is he talking about uh, where people should worship? Not at all. He's actually avoiding that question at all. He doesn't want to talk about whether they're right or wrong, whether they should mar- uh, worship there or there. Or there. He's, he wants to talk about something far more important, who they are worshipping. And the logic of this works back to front. What both Jews and Samaritans believed and were hoping for was the returning Messiah, the Messiah who would bring salvation and would deliver them. However, the problem for the Samaritans was they had rejected all but the first five books of the Old Testament, of the Jewish scriptures. And therefore, they had very little idea of who that Messiah was and what he was going to be like and what he was going to do because that was included in all the books they'd rejected. Therefore, they were hoping and expecting this Messiah, but they knew very little about him. The um, Jewish uh, nation obviously had kept all those uh, scriptures and they were studying them, waiting and looking for who this Messiah might be. Therefore, Jesus says, you are worshipping something you don't really know. These guys are worshipping something they do not know because, as they know, the Messiah is going going to be coming from the Davidic line, from the pure-blooded Jewishness, and he is therefore the one that we need to be expecting. But what he is not doing is talking about where they should worship. He's talking about who they should worship. Because, verse 21, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Jesus, as he always does, is saying, it is all about me. Are you going to get with my program? I am the only thing you need. Are you going to respond? Because you see, in general terms, and specifically here, the religious attitude that at times we all have that seeks to fixate on small details that become huge details that divide us off from each other about, hey, the way in which we worship, for instance, what really happens in communion, all these sorts of things. Jesus usually has uh, a strange way of saying, this doesn't really matter in the light of me. And when we extend the religious attitude to bigger things, it divides us off, it separates us from people, and Jesus says, yeah, but what about me? Have you remembered me? Look at me, because I'm the one you need. He, as Paul says, destroys all the barriers between Jew, Samaritan, and Gentile, as well as slave and free, male and female, conservative and liberal, 
young and old, and he does it by killing off that attitude in his body on the cross once and for all. The one, that attitude that says, I'm better than you, I look down on you, I wish you could be more like me. Jesus says, none of you is moral or pure or good enough. But rather than discard you, rather than separate myself off from you, I fully embrace you. With arms open wide and I welcome you in and I'm the only one who can do it because I'm the only one who is moral and good and perfect enough. So his point here is, I am the Messiah. I am the one that you are looking for. I am the deliverer of Israel and Samaria. You are the one that I have. Uh, you are the ones that I have come for, and I am the salvation not just for you, but for the whole entire world, past, present, and future. I am the one, the suffering servant, the one like us who shared in our suffering to lift us up to heaven. All well and good. What's this got to do with worship? Well, the battle for us all when we become Christians and when we ongoingly try to live the Christian life is are we going to submit to him? Are we going to lay down our lives at his feet? It's the greatest challenge in becoming a Christian and it's the greatest challenge as we go on in this life. I think as we've said uh, a number of times before, when we come into a worship context, I think we always meet two people. We meet Jesus in all his glory and majesty and goodness. We've been singing about him, and people will find it difficult at times to say, God, you're so good, God, you're so good, God, you're so good, because he really doesn't feel very good to us. And yet we're singing it, and we are putting ourselves in the place of having to confront the fact that either God is good or he's not. And if he's not, we're going to struggle. But there, there he is, in his majesty, in his greatness, in his beauty, and we are confronted by him. He's the first person we meet, and sometimes we just find him overwhelmingly beautiful. But often, the other person who we meet gets in the way, and the other person who we meet is ourselves. Because in the light of his beauty and his goodness and his perfection, we see ourselves for what we really are. And what we see, sometimes, is not very nice. And we don't really want to look at it, and we definitely don't want to look at it in the light of him. And so we have a choice to make in worship. Do we turn away from him, and go our own way because actually we'll be a bit more comfortable without that confrontation? Or do we turn to him and go, you are beautiful, you are glorious, you are amazing. Please would you show me just how great you are. Will you meet me here? It's always the choice we have. So assuming, and again, we always say it, Brad, you don't have to involve yourself in anything that we do. You can sit here and not involve yourself. That's absolutely fine. But assuming that for now we would actually quite like to meet this living God and allow him to uh, pour himself into us, how then do we worship effectively? How are we supposed to worship? Firstly, we do it in the spirit. Verse 24, God is spirit. Therefore, Worship, which connects with him, is not determined by external categories like place and performance. Worship is not about whether the music's any good. Worship is not about whether I really like this song. Oh, I like this one. 
Oh, I hope they play this one. Oh, they have. Yes, I'm going to worship. It is not about that, although, you know, there are some good songs and there are some really, 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 really bad songs. It's not about that. It is about whether we are connecting with God as spirit. So worship is by our human spirit through the action of the Holy Spirit to connect with God as spirit, as he meets with us through his Holy Spirit right here, right now. I've always loved a picture a friend of mine um, had of a sort of small gathering of, uh, it was actually teenagers, and they were sort of worshipping. And they were teenagers with lots of enthusiasm, but also, you know, they were insecure and they are worried about their peers. And so there was this sort of um, big worship off where they were all trying to sing as loudly as possible so that people would hear their voices and go, oh, you've got a lovely voice. And they were trying to harmonize even though they couldn't. And they were all worshiping like this. And the picture that my friend had was of Jesus walking around and listening and putting his ear not to their mouths to hear the sounds they were making, but putting his ear to their hearts to hear what sound their hearts were making because that's what he's interested in. He's interested in our heart and our spirit connecting to his. Now, this, of course, is not to say that our musicianship is not important. It is very important. And it wasn't that great, by the way. I just love it when people who are very good at doing something do it. It's just beautiful. I find it moving. I cry at tennis when good tennis players play. I cry at concerts when people do things. I know it's strange, (laughs) weirdo. I do. I find it moving because people are doing what they are created to do, and I find it beautiful. I find it emotional, and I love it when people who can really play, who can really sing, are expressing their gifts, find it moving. When God creates um, the world, the refrain over and over again is, and he saw that it was good, and the word for good does not mean passable, it does not mean okay, it does not mean good enough, it means beautiful, perfect, uh, just uh, pleasurable in every way. So when people are doing things well, we should rejoice in it. And we should always go for it. However, not at the detriment of the spirit being left out. Because otherwise, all we're doing is singing some songs. So where then is the spirit in our worship? Those of you who are brought up in a Catholic church will know that um, traditional Catholic teaching will say that the spirit is primarily involved in the sacraments. In the bread and wine, that's where the spirit is involved. Those who are brought up in reformed evangelical um, uh, sort of uh, um, traditions will know that um, uh, the spirit is primarily involved in teaching and the speaking of scripture. And those who are brought up in the Pentecostal traditions, the wacky ones, the weirdos, hello, love you. Uh, But you will know that the Spirit is primarily involved in the laying on of hands and the seeking of the spiritual gifts. This is how the first church of Spirit-filled believers worshipped in Acts 2, which I read last week. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, reformed evangelical and to fellowship and the breaking of bread catholic and to prayer everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs pentecostal the spirit is involved in anything that the spirit would like to involve himself in thank you very much we cannot constrain him we cannot put him in a box even though we would love to because we love to be in control 
We love to make sure that everything is happening just as we like it. Thank you very much. And the Spirit goes, no, thank you. I will do whatever I like. The wind blows where it pleases is how the Old Testament writers try to communicate the way that God will not be domesticated. He works through anything that he likes. Our job is to try and follow the Spirit in our worship. Now, I like um, communion. I like taking uh, sacraments. I would do it every week if it weren't for the fact that um, I think it can become sort of... um, uh, can lose its power through over-familiarity. But I think we should probably do it every week. But, you know, I'm being sensitive to you. I love um, spirit-filled sung worship, and I, I believe in all the gifts of the Spirit, and I'm looking for them all the time, and I think we all should be, because that's what we're called to do. And I love the Bible. It's a magic book. We've got a magic book. We've got a book that speaks to people and changes people's lives. Isn't that extraordinary? We never read it. What a shame. It was an attack on me. I don't read it enough. Now, obviously, we have a particular form of worship here. And some people will like it. Some people will be okay with it. And the reason we've got this form of worship is because we find it the easiest way to actually connect with the Spirit. Now, if it's not your bag, that's absolutely fine. Go and find something that is your bag. But make sure you are connecting to the Spirit. Make sure the Spirit is there. Otherwise, you're just singing songs or you're just saying liturgy or you're just doing whatever. And the reason we do it is because the songs are pretty easy to get a hang of. They're sort of relevant for 1984 in a musical genre. And you know, 1984, very hip right now. Uh, Soft rock's coming back. Possibly. Uh, but, th- you know, these are the things that, um, that we are trying to uh, put in place so that we can actually connect to God. I know it's getting hot. Secondly, in truth. We worship him in spirit and secondly, in truth. This has several layers of meaning. It is not, though, primarily speaking about our honesty and our authenticity when we come to worship. I know that, though, is what it's often taught as. We just need to be really true and authentic in our worship because then we will be pleasing to God. Can I let you into a little secret? None of us are authentic. None of us are without mixed motives. None of us are pure. I'm really sorry, but it's just who we are. And therefore, if we are worrying whether we are pure enough, the answer is, you're not, ever, never. Now, integrity in all aspects of life is very important. Jesus does not like duplicity. We are called to grow up into full honesty and truth. However, what this is not talking about is, do you really mean it? Do you? Do you really mean what you're saying? Or are you just pretending? The more we mean it, the better. But it's not a case of binary black and white. Do we really mean it? What this phrase is about is about the truth of the person we are worshipping. It is that we are worshipping the truth. Elsewhere in the Gospel, John says that Jesus came full of truth. Jesus is the truth. The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit guides us in all truth. And that God's word is the truth. 
So in this context where Jesus is saying the only thing that really matters for Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, and everyone else is who they are worshipping and they should be worshipping me because I am the one who has come to bring salvation. What he is saying is, so you have got to worship the true thing and I'm it. To worship in truth is to worship and to speak of a spirit-led, Christ-centered and Christ-enabled gospel worship. The one who was from the bosom of the Father has made God known. He has become flesh and blood like one of us. He has wandered around with us. He has shared in our sufferings and he has defeated and destroyed and become victorious over all that separates us from him and the Godhead. This is worship in truth. And as I said, it's not one-way traffic. As we worship him, he glorifies us. Got some more here. It's quite good. It's only three more pages. Very long, small font. So the interaction with this Samaritan woman follows on directly from Jesus' promise of total heart-quenching, soul-reviving spiritual fulfillment. And this is not the reason to worship, but it is a byproduct of worship that he pours his spirit out onto us. Now, sometimes it precedes our worship and it helps us to worship, and sometimes it uh, comes after our worship as a result of our worship. So in Acts 10, when the first Gentiles experience the Spirit, they cannot help themselves and they start speaking in tongues, worshipping God as a sort of natural flow from experiencing his Spirit. But at Pentecost, the disciples, before the giving of the Spirit, were said to be all in one place together, praying, seeking God, worshipping him, looking to his face. And it's only then, after having done that, that the Spirit is poured out upon them. Now, of course, in all worship, there is an element of our wills involved. Do we want to? Which is where I started. Do you want to worship him? You don't have to. And David says to himself, he speaks to his own soul, worship him, wake up, wake up and worship him. We can choose not to. I would encourage you to choose to worship. However, it doesn't stay just in the realm of our wills and our motivations. As we bring glory, we are glorified and we are lost, as the famous hymn goes, in wonder, love and praise caught up in the beauty of heaven. So, should worship be emotional? Of course it should. Of course it should. Now, emotions is not what we're going for. We're going for the spirit. However, what does it mean to say, I love someone, if my emotions are not really involved? Now, there is such a thing as over-emotionalism, where the only thing that matters is our emotions and getting some sort of reaction out of people, some sort of hyped-up thing with smoke machines, and I hate smoke machines, and, you know, special lights, and, ooh, isn't this amazing? Now, obviously, the Spirit can use everything, as I've just said. However, I wouldn't go for over-emotionalism. I wouldn't go for the emotions are the only things in the same way I wouldn't go for music is the only thing. The Spirit is the only thing. 
But as I said, in order to fully give ourselves over to God, we need to fully give ourselves over to God, which means our whole being is involved, mind, will, emotions. It's why in a minute we're going to take a, a collection because um, in giving money, we are saying all of us is involved in this. Now, no one ever has to give any money. You are covered by grace. Never give any money if you don't want to. But do because you want to respond to Jesus with your whole self. As Martin Luther, one of the only useful things he ever said. That's a joke. Uh, but he said, um, uh, there are three conversions necessary. Of the mind, of the heart, and of the wallet because our whole selves need to be involved, including our emotions. So it is very normal that when we are actually worshiping, our whole selves is affected. And we can find ourselves crying, we can find ourselves leaping with joy, we can find ourselves behaving in quite strange ways because the whole of us is being uh, affected by the presence of the living God. When David, the key worshiper in the whole Bible, uh, brings the ark in, he is dancing, wearing one piece of clothing, and it is a very small piece of clothing covering his dignity. And his wife says, put some clothes on, David. And he goes, oh, wait a second, you want me to be less free? I'm going to become even more undignified than this which means he's going to lose his Calvins and he's going to be dancing around completely naked because where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, complete and utter freedom. Please don't get naked. <laughs> I'm uh, relatively posh, pleased to meet you, and I'm also British, so I'm not great at emotions, partly because of my character, partly because of my upbringing. You may be similar. But the challenge to all of us is still to open ourselves as much as we can. To expand our emotional um, bandwidth so that he can meet us. To heal our pain. To heal the bad experiences we've gone through. And for us to be able to actually fully share ourselves with him. I'll finish with this. A friend of mine uh, tells a story of meeting in a very small church in the north of England. The north of England is a sort of wasteland that you should never go to. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful place. Uh, it's the industrial north uh, where everything's gray and it rains. Anyway, uh, he was in this small church in, um, in the north of England. And they were all worshipping together. And then suddenly the worship is interrupted by these shouts and exclamations and whoops of joy. And then this one person is pushed to the front of the church, put on the microphone, and he just exclaims, I have been healed. And the person leading the church, my friend, said, um, you know, forgive his lack of faith. How do you know? He said, well, I've been born mute I haven't spoken a word until right now. All in the context of worship. Because as we glorify God, God glorifies us and he shares himself with us and he changes things in the context of worship. The psalmist says that God dwells in the midst of the praises of his people. And so, as we worship, as we gather together, as we take communion, as we hear from his word, 
And as we are hungry, salivating for the gifts of his spirit, he is here with us, sharing himself with us, wanting to meet with you personally. Wanting to tell you things. Wanting to show you things. Because that's the sort of God he is. Good, that'll do.